0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Another week and another biblical passage awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College of Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. This week... We will carry on with our story in John chapter 4 regarding the encounter that Jesus had with an unnamed Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. If you recall, Jesus was traveling north from Jerusalem to Galilee, and instead of taking the Jordan River route, by, which is bypassing Samaria, he instead chose to head the more direct route north into the region of Samaria. And needless to say, there was some bad history between the Jews of Israel and the people of Samaria. You see centuries earlier the Jews were living in the Jews that were living in the northern part of Israel they rebelled from the rest of Israel and they separated themselves from their brethren to the south the Lord was not in favor of this separation and warned them repeatedly through prophets and such of what was coming if they did not repent but they didn't listen And soon enough, and sure enough, the neighboring Assyrians that uh, were known for their warrior conquering abilities, they did move in and they conquered the northern tribes of Israel and that took the land and dispersed those people. And they also then imported or brought in other people, many people from other areas of the Middle East, from Assyria and also from Babylonia and such. And uh, they came and settled and were able to take up the land and populate this. And they ended up uh, getting connected with the Jews that were still there that had remained and weren't scattered. And uh, they became, through intermarriages and so forth, they they became uh, kind of a synchronized people. So they were now sharing customs and religious beliefs and so forth. And the Jewish people then that were still in the northern kingdoms that, that were there became completely immersed in these foreign uh, customs and peoples and ways and even in their religions and through their intermarriages and so forth. So there was virtually very little Jewishness left in them as the centuries have gone by. Uh, The one thing they did do is they did maintain, though, their strong belief in the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now animosity had greatly increased between the southern Jews and these half-breed northern counterparts, uh, and that wasn't helped at all when a Jewish military leader named Hyrcanus, who uh, waged active warfare in Samaria some 100, 200 years at the most before Christ, and he destroyed the temple that they had, their alternative temple to the Lord, at Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans had built this so they wouldn't have to Travel to Jerusalem and worship at the Jerusalem temple, um, as they were, that was part of their rebellion and their the, the civil war. So the Samaritans, now at this time of Christ, they are hated by the Jews and they every bit as much hate the Jews back. Noted scholar uh, Joachim Jeremias ranks the various classes of people in and around Jerusalem by chapters in his book, Jerusalem and the Time of Christ. At the top of the list were Israelites of pure ancestry which would include typically the rich and the clergy and the nobility and the Pharisees. The next category would be those engaged in despised trades, like collection of dung and things like that. And then it would be Jewish slaves. They were followed by illegitimate Israelites and then Gentile slaves. And then at the bottom were the Samaritans. According to Jeremiah, there were only two possible ways a person could be lower than a Samaritan. One was to be a Samaritan woman, and the other, even lower, was to be an immoral Samaritan woman. Yet in John chapter 4, verse 4, we see that Jesus had to go through Samaria. It was of necessity. This despite the fact that Samaritans were now considered impure and causing impurity to the one who has contact with them. So knowing this background really can help the story come alive as Jewish is going to meet a presumptuously immoral Samaritan woman at a will, the lowest of lowest, according to these uh, writings. Now, Jesus sat down in our story at Jacob's will near the village of Sychar. He was weary from traveling as they were walking through Samaria, and he sent his disciples into the nearby town to obtain food. Uh, this, despite a proverb I just came up saw from the Mishnah, which is the Jewish uh, law statements where they are kind of enhancing and adding to the law. Here is uh, in a section that says, He that eats the bread baked by the Samaritans is like to the one who eats the flesh of a pig. Which, again, to a Jew, you don't, you don't do that. So the disciples <laughs> said, hey, go get some bread here in Samaria. And he sat alone and waited at the well. And just around noon, along comes the solitary Samaritan woman to draw water at the well. And as we saw last time, Jesus initiated this remarkable conversation with her, which uh, we saw, and and, uh, he broke uh, strong social customs that that said men are not to speak to women in public, um, sometimes not even their own wives or daughters. So this public engagement of the conversation is breaking the norms. Uh, And let alone a woman that's unknown to you, or even worse, a Samaritan woman, or even worse yet, a woman who could be of questionable character. Jesus just says, hey, hi, basically, and starts a conversation. He piqued her interest in this conversation by telling her about living water that forever satisfies the one who simply drinks. And she replied, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She was still contemplating things on their in their conversation on a physical level. And so the Lord wanted to elevate her thoughts to more of a spiritual dynamic and understanding. And that's because where he was what he was talking about. So he does this by asking her to go and get her husband, in which she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus then truly gets her attention when he says, Yeah, that's true, indeed. You have no husband because you've actually had five husbands, and the man that you are now living with is not your husband. Well, now she gets it. (laughs) And she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And they then engage in a spiritual conversation regarding worship and the proper place to worship, whether it should be in the temple in Samaria, though it was now destroyed, they still recognize that as the issue, or the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus, who already has appealed to her by offering living water that satisfies, now goes on to tell her that the time has come where it doesn't matter where you worship. The issue is approaching the Father in spirit and truth. Now just think how radical this would sound to someone at that time. You can freely worship without bringing a sacrifice, without a physical priest, without a physical place, and you can refer to God as your Father. And all of this is because Jesus will be the ultimate sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world, and he will become the ultimate high priest, granting this free access to the Father through him. And he himself is the temple, since the temple in the Old Testament was always in the tabernacle before it, always a visual, had a visual effect to, for God to show that it demonstrates his presence with his people. And that's how they could have access to him was through a priest, was through a sacrifice, was through a mediator that displayed God's holiness and then his presence there as uh, sometimes the Shekinah glory would reflect that. No wonder the New Testament believer who's in Christ, we're told that our bodies are the temple of God. And that's simply because our bodies house the indwelling Jesus Christ. Well, this conversation and this idea of living water and now free worship and spirit and truth prompts the woman to say that she knows the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things, to which Jesus directly responds to her, I who speak to you am he. And the stunned woman left her water pot and went into the city. And here is where we left off in our last episode. So now our story, we'll see, will fork in two directions. They'll fork together, uh, they'll come back together again in a little bit. But we'll follow the first fork that tells us about what happens with the woman. And John four twenty nine. 29, uh, t- we'll, we'll read there and we'll see. Uh, I want to pay attention to these words carefully. The woman, it's verse 28 through 30 actually, in John chapter 4. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And so she first went into the city with this exciting message, and for who? The men. Now, why do you think this is? Well, We've seen, I think, I hope you've seen, that she's a remarkable woman, not your average woman at all. She's not got her head down and and, uh, just uh, going by all of the norms and customs and so forth of that patriarchal culture. Nope, she's not following those strict customs about men since we just saw her in an engaging conversation with Jesus, holding her own, asking questions, give and take. Add to that fact that she has been married five times and is now living with a six man, so we can deduce that she has an engaging personality is comfortable talking with men is probably generally well received by them, though she craves a real and satisfying relationship that's not been happening. Now, if a woman fits this description, she's liked by men and you know, gets along well with them, and even more so if she's at all attractive you can know she'll be pretty much disliked, maybe even despised by the other women in town, which we see because the woman at the well goes to the well in the heat of the day alone, not when the women of the village would go collectively in the morning or at dusk. So she's not in good standing with her female peers. So her message is to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And you think, mm, lady, are you sure you want to be saying that? Are you sure you want to be saying, you know, all things I ever did? I mean, you kind of have a checkered past. And you know, I think this is really revealing because this shows some real transparency on her part. She's willing to say, "Yeah, I'm vulnerable. I am all that you say I am." Imagine the the jokes and the how the, you know, a dismissiveness of the men could dump on her when she comes in saying, "Look at this man who told me all things I ever did." Uh-huh she doesn't seem to be concerned with that. You know why? Because it's okay. And I think it's this for, for this reason. She has been exposed. She has been seen through and through. And yet she knows she's loved and accepted. And she saw Jesus's grace in that conversation. She's vulnerable, but loved and accepted in his eyes powerful connection now with the Messiah, face-to-face with amazing grace. What a thing to be known, completely known, seen through and through, no secrets at all, and also at the same time to be loved and accepted. How liberating must that be? And that's the amazing message that's embedded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we tend to identify ourselves with our behavior choices. You know, well, I'm just a drunk, or I'm a bad mother, or I'm a bad parent, or I'm fat, or I'm a violent man or woman. I'm a loser. You know, we build our self-identities around our sin, our failures, our weaknesses. We dwell on them. And then other people help us do this too. We really like to help other people really focus on all their bad things, don't we? And so pretty soon it becomes our identity. Pretty soon it becomes how we see ourselves. And then addictions can emerge as you go back again and again for more to find some temporary pleasure or release or distraction. But really, it re- really follows up with bondage. I heard someone say addiction is running to your problem as if it's your solution. And you know, you do that long enough, you get pretty miserable. And the result is you're not satisfied. You're not fulfilled, and there's a longing inside. You'd like to see a new you, a new version. Can I get a 2.0 of me? Well, Isaiah 55, 1-3 has some powerful words where God speaks through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah says, uh, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. and You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price? Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, and come to me here, and your soul shall live. Boils are soothing and powerful words. Everyone who thirsts, come. Come and buy and eat. You know, this means come freely and buy and eat. This is a picture, a message of grace. Get it freely. God provides it. God's going to give it to us. We take it by faith. And you can come and you who are thirsty and be satisfied. and See that inner thirst quenched, delighted in the abundance. As he says, let your soul delight itself in abundance, abundance of grace, abundance of love, abundance of forgiveness and acceptance, and a new identity, abundance, and satisfaction come, and your soul shall live. You see, sin never satisfies. The longer you persist, the more you know this. We all know this. That it depletes you. It, it doesn't fulfill you, but we keep coming back for more, and at greater personal cost, until you finally we sent to, finally finally ask, "What have I been missing?" So many of us are are often profoundly unhappy, or dissatisfied, or empty inside as Jesus calls it, thirsty. And we try to make over our life by filling that void with distractions. Maybe it's sex or money or food or alcohol or hobbies. In this woman's case, she'd gone from man to man, hoping the next would be better. But each relationship apparently leaves her increasingly dissatisfied and damaged and desperate. Here's the deal. If you're looking for to a thing or a job or another person to fulfill you, you're putting an expectation on them that they cannot meet. And this will only lead to frustration. The Lord himself is the thirst quencher and that relationship that starts with him. And that's why he says, everyone who drinks of this water to the woman back to the physical water at the woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But Jesus was offering living water. So if you recall his words last week in John 4, 13 and 14, in his conversation to this woman, he said, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Whoever is an invitation to everybody, to anybody and nobody, is excluded. And the water that I shall give him, note this again, this is something that's given. It's free. And grace is the source behind this. And grace is that undeserved kindness and favor from God toward us. What an expression of God's love to you, this offer, that is possible, this everlasting springs of water of life, it's possible through Jesus Christ, the one who loves you and gave himself for you at Calvary. He died for you, and he paid for all your sin, and he will release you from guilt and bondage and then offer you eternal living water that satisfies. A spring of water springing up into everlasting life. So friends, do you have this? Are you satisfied? Do you know that when it's all over, you are good to go and you will be with the Lord in heaven? I mean, you can You can have the eternal life welling up within you by faith in Christ, by receiving the water that he gives. So why not? Why not now? Well, before this, the woman had an identity. Marred by failed relationships, she was searching and never finding fulfillment. And Jesus did not tell her all the things that she ever did. That's what she said. Come and see a man who told me all things I ever did. Well, no, he didn't. That would take a very long time. But he did touch on the area of her life that had become to define her existence and had become her identity, so it's as if he told her everything about her. You see, when you embrace Christ by faith and believe in him and his death and resurrection on your behalf, you get a new identity. You become a new creation, born again, and all things become new. And you are now a Christ one. That is who you now are, one who is in Christ belonging to him. Sure, you may struggle with sin and areas of failures. Let's be honest, we're not perfect, and sometimes really glaringly so. But there's a difference now if you're a believer. You are a Christ one who might struggle as a parent, but that is not your identity. Your identity is you are a Christ one, secondarily, who might have this area of difficulty. You are not a bad parent, period, as identity. No, you're a Christ one. You're a Christ one who struggles maybe with a drinking problem. Your identity is first and foremost, you're a Christ one. That's who you now are. The drinking problem is something you do. That's different. So that means you are not a drunk, period. That's your identity. No, you're a Christ one. And maybe you're a Christ one who happens to eat too much, which means then I'm in Christ. That's my identity. Maybe I struggle in that area, but I am not just fat period, my identity. You see how liberating this is? Your identity first and foremost is that you are in Christ, loved by him, and you are accepted by him, and you have a new identity and righteousness attached to him, with hope even, regarding all those areas of your life in the future. Now the woman, after interacting with Jesus and hearing his words, she left her water pot there, you see, what she thought she needed became irrelevant when she saw who Christ was and and believed in him. The issue was not her sin all along. Yes, Jesus is holy, and yes, he hates her sin. She was an immoral woman, but he knows he will die for it, be punished for it, and that will be dealt with. No, the issue is her thirst. And the inner thirst that we all have, he speaks to us and says, come, come. To the rivers of living water. There's a song that we sing in our youth uh, songbook. It's called Satisfied, and it says, All my life long I had panted for a draught from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. And in the chorus is, Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his life, I now am saved. John chapter four, verse 30, tells us how the woman's witness was then effective as she went into town and said, come and see. And verse 30, after that, the, they it says, then they went out of the city and came to him. They are on their way now To the well to encounter Jesus and see him for themselves. So, John chapter 4, verse 31, we see the fork of the two stories will come together. But let's go back to verse 27. I skipped that verse, that was where we read this. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you, or why are you talking with her? Uh, this was the point now, the disciples had come back. The, Jesus and the woman at the well had just finished their conversation. She'd left her water pot, and she's heading into town. And when the men, the disciples came back, they marveled as the stories come together. You know, this is the same word Jesus used it with Nicodemus in John 3, 7. He, he said to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, because that statement blew him away. So the idea here is one of astonishment, and the p- disciples are just flat out astonished that Jesus is speaking with a woman. But no one's going to dare correct him. I mean, after all, he's, well, you know, he's God, he's the Messiah. And then we can clearly see that his ways are not our ways, as Isaiah would tell us. Our social norms, our taboos, our customs, they're not his. And his ways are higher, and his words are higher, and his ways are better. So the disciples note that, they're amazed, but by verse 31, they we pick up the story after the woman had left and we read, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They've come back and they have food and now they would like for him to eat. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? I mean, what's he talking about? again we have the physical versus the spiritual that Jesus wants to take this conversation up to a spiritual level so Jesus then said to them in verse 35 34 rather my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work this is his food that i crave when i do his will it's something that i crave and it's something which satisfies my hunger and fulfills me, to do his will. It it satisfies on the spiritual level, as the illustration of food can do on the physical level. So it is to do my father's will, to please him, to be about his business, to see him be glorified. That is like food to me. And then he goes on using an agricultural example in verses 35 through 38. He says to his disciples, do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Now, this is an agricultural kind of lesson here, and it's kind of a difficult passage, but we're going to take a stab at it quickly. Um, he says, uh, again, that uh, his food is to do the Father's will, to see the Father glorified, etc. cetera. Um, and then he points out that there's four months, and there's typically four months between planting and harvesting. So he, he says... Um, Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Uh, His idea is this isn't a time of waiting now for the harvest like that sometime in the future. It's now. So do not say there are still four months before the harvest. I say to you, and I can imagine when he says this, he's looking now out at the scenery and look what's coming toward them from the village of Sychar. The woman leading a bunch of men that are coming out to see and talk to him. So he says, look, behold, the fields are already ready for harvest. And as they look, they would see the woman leading a group of Samaritans to Jesus. And so we see our story converges when they come, the disciples come, and now they're at the well and they're talking, and now the woman is returning with them, and the two forks have become coming together. The waiting time is over. The harvest has arrived. Harvest is a common eschatological symbol in scriptures. By that big word, we mean it's a picture of future events, future ending time, end times, typically where we see the gathering of people into the kingdom. So harvest is used in that way. The harvest we will see then will be the gathering of many Samaritans about to approach them, coming into the kingdom by way of faith. And the disciples will participate in this. He who reaps, Jesus said, there's a wage for the reaper, and it's that he gathers fruit for, or the Greek word is ice, into eternal life. The reason for the wages, there's a purpose statement here, the reason they'll have this wage, and the wage will be uh, gathering people into eternal life, the reason for it is that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. So verse 37, there's clearly two that are involved. There is one who sows and one who reaps. And then Jesus ends in verse 38 by, says the sower, um, Jesus is the sower and all truth then would originate with him and the disciples are being sent to reap for the kingdom, harvesting the crop of others who have labored. And one hint of this is the pronouns used in verse 38 are emphatic. So you could read it as, I myself sent you to reap for that which you have not labored and others have labored, and you yourselves have entered into their labors. So the result is the eternal life, and they are involved in this. This is just more grace for these disciples benefiting from all that. Well, we finish our story in verse chapter 4, verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. It's always the issue. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves now have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ. The savior of the world, and then after the two days, he departed from there, returned to Galilee. So we see in verse uh, 39, now they believed in him. That's always the issue. They were the word means to be persuaded so as to trust. So the Samaritans in verse 40 they urged uh, a Jewish rabbi to stay with them, which is unheard of, and they would never do that unless they truly had become convinced. He was the Messiah. And so verse 41, we see much more harvesting, two more days. And can you imagine those days? I am sure they were spontaneously joyful, happy. There's probably food and laughter, and Jesus is continuing to explain and to teach things and to clarify many things as they obviously had a lot of mixed baggage in their religious beliefs, but they believe and they're united and there's fellowship and joy. In verse 42, they explained again to the woman why they believed. It started with your words, they said, but now we've heard him as well, and we know he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. <clears throat> now we believe. Simplicity, and it's always the issue. Put in your faith in Christ, that he is who he says he is, that he has done what he has done. It is for your benefit, and you believe in his death and his burial and his resurrection and you will confidently know he is the Christ and you are in him and you have become born again in him. Evangelism here was a message of that. The woman said, come and see, come and see. And may we think and do the same. We really want to urge people that we know if we're saved to come and see this incredible savior, to hear of him and believe in him. And you'll you'll find this savior today. He's not walking physically on the earth, but you'll find him in the pages of Scripture and you'll hear his voice and his word. So come and see and be convinced. Now, the last thing we want to do is we want to compare the woman at the well story here in John 4 with the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, as the two stories are meant to be viewed side by side, a contrast and a visual uh, designed to shed more light by seeing them side by side. We see Nicodemus, we see the woman at the well. Nicodemus was a male, she was a female. He was a Jew, she a Samaritan. He is named Nicodemus, and he's famous. She is not named. He was honored, as he was well known and the teacher of Israel. She was an outcast. He was educated. As far as we know, she was uneducated. He was moral. She was immoral. He seeks out Jesus and comes to him at night. But she is sought out by Jesus. Jesus. He encounters Jesus, like we said, at night. She encounters Jesus in the middle of the day. He fades out in their conversation as Jesus just starts really talking to him uh, in John chapter 3. She remains active in the conversation. There's much more give and go. He receives some revelation from Jesus as Jesus tells him the story of Moses and the serpent and being lifted up as he's trying to take what he already knew and identify that with him The Son of Man will be lifted up. But she received full revelation. I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. The most direct uh, uh, statement that he makes of that nature. He, Nicodemus, leaves not really knowing who Jesus is yet. She leaves knowing exactly who Jesus is. He remains in the background of Jesus. We don't hear of him again in any conversation with Jesus, but he's obviously around. We we see him in John 7, etc., but she immediately brings many others to Jesus as in the middle and in the thick of those two days of, I'm sure, celebration and worship they all had. He eventually, though, abandons his religion when he comes out and he ministers to the body of Christ after the crucifixion. We know that he got it somewhere in there. So he does eventually abandon his religion and identify with Christ. She immediately abandoned her water pot <laughs> And identified with Christ. He then spontaneously, quietly ministers, attending to the body of Jesus, while she spontaneously, loudly proclaims, He is the Christ, come and see. Now, Nicodemus did eventually get it, but there's a lot of unraveling that had to be done first. He didn't see his need right away, and he had to let go of his inept religion. It took him some some while to do that. But in the end, he's there ministering to the body of the crucified Jesus, much valuable service. And he comes out in the open, and you can see him now ministering and connected to the cause of Christ. In the meantime, though, between John 3 and John 19, he spent a lot of time in stuffy, uptight circles, a lot of time with people concentrating on societal expectations, the legalistic Pharisees, and their performing to keep in good standing and full of self-righteousness and smugness. And I'm sure they grew less and less appealing to him as he kept seeing that. And as well, then, his religion that they represented also became less and less appealing. He, too, was longing for free worship that was indicated by his willingness to come and converse with Jesus and ask questions. He would much rather do that in the broad daylight, but he had to do it by night. But he, too, was seeking some relational connection, some understanding here uh, that would lead to even maybe something even spontaneous. And finally, he detaches from the external phony system and openly, dare we say spontaneously, will worship by ministering to the body of Jesus Christ, now with a whole new identity and future. The woman, she saw her need immediately. And she was so thirsting inwardly. So when she sees Jesus accurately, she rejoices and celebrates, leaves her water pot like Nicodemus abandoned his religion. She abandons what she was you know, involved with or what she thought she'd get some satisfaction out of. As that represented that. And, and she goes and tells others the good news leading the whole town or basically the whole town out to Jesus. And there's joy in the community, fellowship, continued learning from Jesus. They're Messiah now. Spontaneous delight as Jesus stays, and he even changes his schedule. He's flexible for a couple of days, and he stays with these awful, impure, inferior, hated Samaritans. No, he stays with these people that he knows and loves and accepts. These people that are now his. Two more days with these believers in him, part of the kingdom now, sharing in the joys of the upcoming kingdom that will be then and there. So let's leave by just asking, you know, you want to stay in your comfort zones, play it safe? You know, the Lord will let you if you're a believer and do that. But I venture that as you keep learning of him, you will eventually venture out. Now, the woman at the well she couldn't wait to leave her comfort zone because it wasn't very comfortable. (laughs) Nicodemus slowly chose to come out, but Nicodemus and the woman did proclaim Jesus and ministered in their own ways. One was an orange, one is an apple. They're both entirely legit. But there's an advantage to be active in proclaiming while in your prime (laughs) as a fruit thinking is while you're ripe. So friends, why not you? As we think of uh, what hinders you from receiving Jesus Christ, let's just think of that as terms of becoming a believer. What hinders you from simply praising the Lord in your heart for his love for you, his death on your behalf, his invitation for you to come, come by and have, be satisfied by faith, receive the gift of life and cleansing from all sin. And then have a new identity. Why wait? As John the Baptist proclaimed when he first saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For just the story of the woman at the will, even the comparison to Nicodemus, it just demonstrates how you love everybody. And as John 3:16 says, whosoever, whoever believes on you. We thank you that it's so simple. It's always the issue. Just what are we trusting on, hanging on to, to gain admission into eternal life? We thank you it's free and easy through what Christ did for us. And we pray, Father, you can, even at those of us who are believers, you can draw us out of our comfort zones. We can find ourselves openly enjoying you and learning of you in a fresh new way. If there's any out out there who have not put their faith in Christ, though, we do pray that they could even see that they can do so now. They don't have to do anything, don't have to make any pledges or any other things, just believe in their heart that all these things are true of Christ and the gift and grace is waiting by faith in Him. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Sure appreciate you listening, and before next time, just remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.